Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in San Francisco. I'm Nathan Fox. Today's show is a Q&A from my LSAT class in San Francisco. We had a very special guest, Gerald Hepler, Associate Director of Admissions at Golden Gate University School of Law. And Gerald did a presentation on, he, he, we called it the um, Nobody's Perfect Law School Admissions Q&A. So Gerald talked about what to do if you don't have the perfect law school application. We talked about character and fitness issues, uh, talked about an uneven undergraduate grade record, and what to do if you are waitlisted. Among other things, Gerald took questions from the class, and the class asked really great questions, and Gerald obviously knows what he's talking about since he reads law school applications for a living. Uh, I hope you enjoy the show. If you have any questions, you can feel free to email me, Nathan, at foxlsat.com. You can also check out our website, thinkinglsat.com. Leave us feedback, leave us a review, send us a note. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. My friend, Gerald Hepler, is here. Gerald is Associate Dean of Admissions. Director. Associate Director. <coughs> Thank you for the promotion. Gerald got promoted to <laughs> By you, just now. Gerald Hepler is an Associate Director of Admissions at Golden Gate University School of Law, and he's here to talk to you about a variety of law school admissions issues. Uh, we are calling this the Nobody's Perfect Law School Admissions Q&A, because he's going to talk about some trouble spots that people see in uh, their law school applications. He's going to go through, he's going to kind of do a bit of, of a presentation, and then he's going to take some questions, and then he's going to open up a new area of discussion, take some questions of a new area of discussion, take some questions. Make sense? Okay, everybody please welcome Gerald Hepler. Thank you, thank you very much, and thank you, Nathan, for having me here tonight. Um, tomorrow, just as an aside, is um, the results of the July bar exam. So there are people who are um, about to find out whether or not they're gonna be lawyers. So do you think your tense I'm trying to imagine how intensive they are. So, good luck to all of them. But um, so tonight, what I thought I would uh, talk about is, um, like Nathan said, some of the, the more challenging issues of navigating the application and admissions process. I think there's a lot of good information out there about. You know, people always want to know about personal statements and letters of recommendation and addendum and all that stuff. And I, and I think there's a lot of good information out there, including a, pod, a recent podcast that um, Nathan has on his website you should listen to. I want to talk about the stuff that um, doesn't get talked about as much, but I think it's important too, um, to help you along with it. And, it. and it may not apply to you now, but it could apply to you at some point in the future. So I'm, I'm hopeful that it will be uh, beneficial to everybody here. So um, just a little bit about me. I graduated from the University of San Francisco Law School in 2006. I practiced estate planning and probate. I was basically a tax lawyer for about five years. Um, and now I'm, uh, well, I'd love to be associate dean, but I'm uh, associate director of admissions at Golden Gate University School of Law, um, which has been around for going on our 114th year, 113th year. Um, and we're known basically for our public interest programs, our litigation program. We have a very strong environmental law program um, and several other really strong programs. Um, I would encourage you to keep in touch with me. I've left some materials and my cards in the back. So after this, if questions come up or you have anything you want to ask me about any aspect of this, 
I really hope you will not be shy about reaching out and, and asking me those questions. So, so let's get started on Nobody's Perfect. Um, the first thing I'd like to talk about is all of you, when you apply to law school, will be working your way through the application, and everything will be going swimmingly, and you will then hit a portion of the application entitled something like character and fitness. Um, every law school is going to ask you some combination of questions about your character and fitness to practice law. And the way they determine that, at least on the law school application side of things, is to ask you things like, have you ever been on academic probation? Have you ever been found guilty of uh, violating a school's honor code? Have you ever been arrested? Have you ever been convicted? Have you ever had a professional license uh, suspended or revoked? And you'll be expected to answer these questions thoroughly and honestly, and it may or may not have any effect on your, your admission to law school. I think people get very nervous about it because they think, well, I have that DUI from graduation night, and it's the only time I ever was entangled with law enforcement, and now I've got to tell them about it, and now I'm not going to get into law school. That actually is not necessarily true. So as nervous as you may be about these questions, it's important that you Read these questions very, very carefully. It's important that you answer them very, very thoroughly. And probably most importantly, if you don't understand a question or you don't know how to answer it or you don't know if you have to answer it, well, was that, was that shoplifting <coughs> incident when I was a kid that was supposedly expunged? Do I really have to report that? Don't decide that in a vacuum. Call the admissions office of each and every law school that is asking you those questions and find out. Doing this on your own and deciding, well, I'm just not gonna report it and cross my fingers and see what's best and hope, hope for the best, uh, can really have some very dire consequences. Um, and most of the time, it actually isn't the incident itself. I'll tell you that in, in my experience, the people who run into trouble, it's not because of the DUI. It's not because of the academic probation, it's because they didn't disclose it, and it's discovered later. When it is discovered later, you can lose a scholarship, you can be expelled from the law school, there can be quite dire consequences. And again, it's not because of the incident, it's because you failed to disclose and it looks like a cover-up. Like they say in politics, it's never the scandal, it's, it's, always, it's always the cover-up. Um, and, and the unfortunate thing is sometimes these things come to light after someone has been in law school for a few months or maybe even two years. They're almost done and this thing will be uncovered and now their entire, everything they put so much work into, everything, and think about all the work you're doing now and everything that you will do to get through law school, all of that is in jeopardy. All of that could disappear. Um, so I just want to encourage everyone to Really understand the questions you're being asked. Um, when you do disclose it, it's usually an addendum. Um, it doesn't have to be lengthy. Uh, it, you know, depending on how much you have to tell, I'm hopeful none of you have a whole lot to, to tell, or most of you probably have nothing to tell, and that's a good thing. But if you do have to disclose something, there's just some, some basic stuff I want to share with you, and write it down now, or call me later, and I'll reiterate it for you, but it'll just make things go a lot more smoothly when your application lands in front of an admissions officer. It's really important, and these things may seem sort of petty and weird, but, but there's a reason. Um, 
tell us what happened, whether it is the academic probation or the, the DWI, whatever it is. Describe it in a chronological order. And please, whatever you do, include the date, dates, if there are more than one, uh, including the year. And, and that may seem a little bit um, sort of anal retentive, but the reason is, um, think of a situation where I'm reading a file and the person is 30 years old, they've had an interruption in their studies, they went to school, they went to community college, were out of school for a while, got back into undergrad, graduated when they were 29, and they simply say in their character and fitness disclosure, this incident happened when I was a sophomore. Now I have to, knowing this person's 30 and had this interruption in their studies, I have to stop reading, either go to their, their cast report, which is given to us by LSAC, or their resume, and figure out exactly what that sophomore year means. What, what does that mean, that this person's older? I don't know when their sophomore year was, because we need to put what happened in the overall context of your entire life experience and the overall context of your entire application. It seems, it's like I said, it seems nitpicky, but when someone just says, this happened when I was a freshman, and I'm now taken out of concentrating on your application, and I have to go rifling through other information to find out when it happened, because I do, I do need to see the, the big, the, the long view, the, the big picture of your entire experience. So please include the year of anything that you need to disclose character and fitness-wise. You will make us so happy, and it's such a little thing, and it will make us so, so happy. Um, oftentimes, having to, to talk about something that's happened, um, obviously we'll bring up maybe some unpleasant emotions, memories, that kind of thing. I, I really would encourage you to stick to the facts. If you start spilling out those negative emotions on the page, start blaming or being resentful or, or even angry, we will pick up on that, and that's, that may not necessarily bode well for who we sort of perceive you to be, and do we want this person to be part of our law school culture at our law school? Every, every admissions person is mindful of the overall culture of their school and the kind of people they want and, and the community that they want to foster. So as much as you may be, te may be tempted to sort of spill those negative emotions out, please do try to avoid that and just, just again, stick to the facts. Um, don't include supplemental material unless it's being asked for, and what I mean by that is um, sometimes I'll get um, police reports um, or findings from a, you know, an undergraduate um, disciplinary board about whether or not the person violated the honor code, and I'll get these sort of old documents and they're scanned. And they, uh, Unless a school asks you for any of those things, do not include them. I, if, I will not read a police report. I will not read a disciplinary finding from an undergraduate institution. We're going to toss it aside. And again, you, you've made me stop concentrating on your application to be annoyed and put something aside. And so unless you're asked for those things, please do not include them. Some schools might want more information, and you may need to use those extra uh, resources to help jog your memory and, and talk about exactly what happened and remind you of the year, so you can include that. But, but definitely don't put them in with your application unless you're specifically asked to do that. Um, I said this a little bit earlier, but if an incident occurred when you were a minor and you think it was expunged or it was sealed or the state you lives in, live in uh, automatically seals records of minors, again, don't just assume that that doesn't need to be reported. It may not need to be, but again, please don't take the advice of 
family members, and I hate to say this, but don't take the advice of lawyers. You might know, um, oftentimes they'll tell applicants, oh, you don't have to worry about reporting that, whatever it is, you don't have to worry about reporting that. It, it's, it's, it's 10 years ago, you don't have to worry. Well, that lawyer may have good intentions, but he or she may be 10 or 15 or even 20 years or more away from their law school experience, and certainly from their admission experience in law school. And with all due respect, they probably don't know what they're talking about. So talk to people like us. Don't rely on your best guess or well-meaning people. Um, call the admissions offices and find out exactly what that means. And the final thing I would say is um, it's important to show some some remorse, or if, if not remorse, at least some self-reflection about what happened. Um, we don't expect you to be crawling on your knees begging for forgiveness, but, but to say somewhere in that addendum, I understand this does not represent my brightest moment. This is not me at my best, and, and I actually did learn something. And, and honestly, tell us what that is. Um, sometimes people will just lay out the facts, uh, and depending on their tone, I've, I've read addendum where there's no there's no remorse, and not only is there no remorse, there's a little bit of an edge to the way they've laid out their facts, and you almost feel like, is there a chip on this person's shoulder? And it goes back again to those sort of negative emotions. Uh, we have, uh, our, our admissions committee is made up of myself, the dean of admissions, and, and faculty members. They're especially um, sensitive to when someone doesn't show some kind of self-reflection or remorse, and they'll actually you know, they'll go to the mat to say, this person, I have some real doubts about this person. So to the extent you can at least be self-aware, try to reflect on your experience, tell us it's not maybe your brightest moment, and then move on, and, and move on with the rest of the application. Um, people are rarely denied admission because of something. I mean, you know, we probably wouldn't admit a convicted murderer who just got released from prison, but that's an extreme example, but more often than not, these things are, are not going to keep you from getting into law school necessarily. So it's better to be upfront, own it, be a grown-up about it, and then move on with the rest of your application. So that's just some really practical advice that I don't think a lot of people get. And maybe some of you have gotten it, and that's great, but um, it, it's, as, it's as important as all the questions people are burning with about their personal statements and their letters of recommendation, this is another really important piece. You are being, you, you are hopefully entering a profession that expects uh, a much higher ethical standard, despite what all the lawyer jokes say. And it's good to just get into that mindset right now uh, and hold yourself to, to that higher standard because other people are certainly gonna do that once you're once you're in the belly of the beast, so to speak. So, questions about character and fitness issues. Right, the question is, um, do they somehow have to hide their identity or disguise their voice? I have a friend, yeah, I've got this friend. That's always, <laughs> this friend who, this news from the clinic, no. Um, no, I, no, in fact, I, I'm much, I'm much, more interested in having someone be really candid with me. And actually, that adds, that sort of will add points, if, that, if that's the right way to put it. I mean, someone who's really candid and just lays it on the table and said, look, this happened. I, I ran with a bad crowd. I was 19 years old at the time. 
this is what happened. I would, I would, I'd like to hear that story. I, I, I thank the person. I say, thank you for, for telling me that. And then I can advise them, I think, in a more effective and better way if I have a sense of the person and I know that they're willing to be honest. And then, and then I, I probably have a pretty good sense they're willing to listen to me and, and do what they need to do in the best way so that we can just get it out there, move on, and hopefully if all goes well, they will be a law student. So that makes sense? Karen's wondering about the year question. Um, if you can't determine the year, um, do your do your best guess. I mean, if you're within a couple of years, I think you'll be fine. And then the other, you're right, there may be something that is just faded into memory and you know there's no official record of it. You got in some kind of trouble or something. Um, I almost don't think that, do people get, I, what happens in high school? Do you, don't, do you even get on academic probation? I don't even remember what happens. I'm, I'm old. Um, high school stuff, probably, yeah, that's, that's something really serious. It, it, they, the things that people mostly have to report are as they're sort of getting into college and after that. Um, but if you can't remember the actual daytime year, just best guess is better than nothing, absolutely. Can you just talk that out a little bit more? Like, yeah, I know you said it varies based on where you're applying, and so go ask the school. But let's just say the situation is, you know, student applying student to your school, they were a minor, and their record is expunged. Would you have to, would you tell that student they still should declare? I mean, if, if they know the record has been expunged, and they have actual evidence of that, you usually get some kind of document about that. You know, they can choose not to disclose that. Um, my mantra is, when in doubt, disclose. You know, I, if, if there's absolute proof that, that that incident has been expunged and, and or sealed, you can go ahead and not report it. Um, there was a similar situation with an applicant a couple of years ago, and for all intents and purposes, that person didn't have to disclose anything, but they chose to tell us everything. It was, it was a long addendum, um, but, but it turned out to be okay because they sort of had the same feeling of when in doubt, disclose. Um, one thing to note is once you graduate, you have to do a character and fitness application for the state bar in whatever state you're going to take the bar exam in. And it makes the few questions you'll answer on an application <coughs> for law school look like a walk in the park. It's a 50-page document. It goes back 10 years. They want to know everywhere you've worked. They want to know everything that has basically ever happened in your life. Uh, they take your fingerprints. The, the Department of Justice checks those out. So good to get into the mode now because there's going to be a much higher expectation about these things going forward. Yes? Um, my name is Charlie. Um, and building off of that, would you then suggest include an addendum or something that you think may, that wasn't explicitly asked for, but you believe may be discoverable and could come up in later years? So something that isn't specifically, you're asking if there's something that's not specifically asked for in the context of our questions, but could yes, come out. Something different maybe? I'm, I'm trying to think what that might be, but yeah. I'm, I'm not sure what's asked for on multiple applications, but if it didn't fall into those yeah, categories, it didn't fall into right. those categories. 
I'll say it again, when in doubt, disclose. It, it certainly won't hurt, right? And, and it better to just get it out on the table. Uh, there, there's actually a, a real sense of, people have a lot of trepidation about this, as I said before, but I think most people find once they do it, it's actually a sense of relief. So. And remember too that anything that happens after you've submitted your application also has to be reported. And if you get into law school, anything that happens at any point going forward for the rest of your life, um, you'll have to report those things to the state bar. Um, it's unfortunate incidents all the time of attorneys who go to the bar after losing a really painful case and drive drunk and their career can disappear. So. Um, yeah, this, the question is if there's two yeah. applications that are very similar but one has a, a CNF addendum. I don't really, and, and I, this is not to avoid the question, I, I don't really read applications like that. I, I don't hold them next to each other and say this person versus this person. Um, I, I try to take every application. You know, we, law schools have to admit far more people than actually show up. So I'm not really limited to say this person or this person. There might be an incident of that at the very end of the application cycle where we need to admit just a couple more people to fill the class right before school you know, orientation begins. But for the vast majority of the time that we're reading files, um, it's not really this person or that person. It's I read this file and then I move on and there's a fresh, hopefully fresh eyes on this individual. Does that make sense? So yeah. um, I, I, I take it in the context of just that person. Does what they did portend anything ominous that you know, an addendum that has 15 incidents of assaulting people, including domestic violence, you know, if it's just this endless list, that's where you can run into trouble. The person I read before and after, that's, does that make sense? I hope that answered your question. I try to, it, it's almost like it's our little universe every time we read a file, at least we hope to do that. That's the way I, that's the way I approach it. So. All right, so the next thing, um, Unless there's any last questions? Something that might be a little more common um, is what I call and what some people call kind of the roller coaster transcript or the roller coaster academics. Um, I mean, we, I, I have some harrowing stories about my first year of college and I didn't know what I was doing and I'm sure my, you know, my transcript shows that. And, and I think all of us at one point or another in our academic lives have had a bad experience, a professor you didn't like, a subject you couldn't get your head around, maybe several subjects you couldn't get your head around. Maybe you were pursuing that dream to be an ophthalmologist, but that dream was your parents' dream and not yours. And so you kind of have this string of bad grades until you really found out what you really wanted to do and respectfully told mom and dad, you know, it's not gonna happen. So, but at that point the damage is done, right? You're, you, you've got some bad grades, you've got some up and down patterns in your transcripts. And it may be just a short incident at the beginning and then you found your passion and then, you know, we, as we analyze your transcripts, we, we see these trends. And you can always tell when someone has sort of found their, their bliss. There's these rocky grades and then, and they'll even talk about it sometimes in their personal statement. As soon as I discovered music or as, as soon as I, you know, discovered business, whatever it was, there's just this amazing improvement in their grades. We understand that. 
Many of us have experienced that. It's not anything that you should be ashamed of. It, it, again, it's like the CNF stuff. Just, you know, it, it's going to be out there anyway. You, you have to provide all of your undergraduate transcripts, including community college. Uh, we require any graduate transcripts. That's, that's an interesting combination because oftentimes people will have a rough undergrad experience, be out of school for a few years, do a master's program, and those grades are sterling. They're amazing. The only problem is LSAC doesn't use any of those graduate grades in calculating the numbers that the various different kinds of numbers they provide for law schools for us to, to evaluate you. We certainly look at those graduate transcripts, but for all intents and purposes, for all the quote-unquote math that LSAC does, they don't, they don't factor those grades in. Um, so tell us about what happened. I mean, it, it can be an addendum, but I've actually read some really skillfully written personal statements that they actually used that story of those rough, rocky grades to tell their story and how they came out of it and how they found their passion, how they really understood what it was to find something they love and work hard at it. Uh, and they were able to kind of skillfully tell me all the reasons why they deserved a chance to go to law school. So again, I, you know, be candid. Um, no matter what it's due to. Some people get those grades because they had to work. They have to support their family. Not everybody, you know, we all know, not everybody has a carefree existence. So we get it. Um, we, a lot of us have that experience ourselves. I worked all through college. I never was not working through college. And it affected my grades sometimes. And again, that can be a really interesting way to tell your story. It, Things were not rosy for you, and you did support your family, and that's actually something I think to be proud of, uh, even though there may be some unfortunate grades dispersed in there because of it. So be candid, be straightforward about it, um, use an addendum, but it, it might be a good idea to think about maybe working it into your personal statement, um, saves you from having to do the addendum, and you might have a really compelling story about what actually has happened to you in your life. Um, a little bit of a shorter intro on that one. Does anybody have questions about not so perfect transcripts? Yes. My name is Bo, by the way. Just have a question Bo. about like, uh, like a wave of incompletes or W's that are just like for, you know. What reasons, Bo? <laughs> so no, you don't have to say. No, I just I can't say. A string just, of like, had needing to leave the school for the personal situation, okay. and it was after the deadline, so I technically. So a, a string of incompletes or withdrawals. Withdrawals, yeah. Right. Official or otherwise. Those unofficial withdrawals I see on transcripts. I wonder what happens when they don't tell us what happened. Um, I, I would address that. I mean, that's not quite the same as getting a bad grade, quote unquote. It's not like a D or an F in a class. But if there's a, more than a couple in a transcript, don't leave that open for my imagination to right. fill that in because despite what people think about lawyers, we can be fairly creative and we might be creative in a way that's not good for you. Okay. Because my, my mind will start spinning. When I see a, a hole in an application and I'm not quite sure what's going on, oh, my little brain will start spinning. Um, I try to let that affect my, you know, but there's a moment there where I'm like, oh my god, I wonder what happened here. Um, you just don't want us to, to do that. So just tell us what happened, you know, and to the extent you can share the details. You don't have to get into the, the gory details or something like that. But you know, you'll know on my transcript in the fall of 2008. I, you know, 
and tell us from there. Uh, but it doesn't have to be anything that's raw or too revealing. But just don't let us fill in that, those gaps. Did you have a question? Uh, yeah, I'm Ariella. Um, I'm just curious, like past grades, how do you lose law school things like that? Is that just, because I know I went to UCSB and I took a few classes past and passed and I got passes, and I'm just curious, like it didn't count towards my GPA, but I've heard, you know, I don't know if it's true, but that sometimes passes are taken for C's or something. Is, that, is your GPA calculated by the school and that's what, what you can use? Or it probably depends on the school. I mean, there's the, the infamous UC Santa Cruz transcripts, where there's no grades, there are just sort of these, depends on the professor, but there are these sort of long evaluations of how the student did in each class. And they can be interesting to read, but one day I actually got two or three, just out of coincidence, I caught two or three Santa Cruz undergrad student applications. And I, it took me an hour. <laughs> you know, I didn't read every, you know, I didn't, sit there and read every single last word, but you, you, you have to read them. I mean, you have to, there isn't really a grade. Um, and I guess it's a little bit similar to uh, what you're describing as taking a pass, no pass. I wouldn't necessarily look down on that um, unless there's a whole lot of them and it's maybe clear from the rest of the application that they might have been trying to skirt some other bad grades or just get through. Um, but a couple of classes taken for pass, no pass, I don't think is negative at all. Right, oftentimes there's no choice. And that's yeah, the pass. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're especially nervous about it, a couple of sentences and an addendum will be fine. But two or three pass, no pass on your transcript is not going to raise an eyebrow, for me at least. I, I wouldn't worry about it. Because you're right, sometimes there's no choice. But you really had to take that class, or you wanted to take that class. So I think, you're, I think you're fine. But it's not like a, a, a pass that's I mean, it's an interesting question. I've heard that before. Yeah, and I, uh, I don't know where that came from. I, and I'm not, and I'm not, again, I'm not certain every school considers it to be that. They're certainly not going to say it explicitly, you know, in some fine print on the transcript. I've never seen that. Uh, but yeah, don't, don't worry about it too much if there's just a few. Do we take into account the percentage of your particular classroom yeah, on the CAS report? Right. Yeah, well, no, we definitely look at that. It also tells us the number of people in the last, I think, year who took the LSAT. and when, like, register with LSAT. Register with LSAT, yeah, LSAC. We, we will look at that. Um, I mean, you have to take into account the relative rigor of the, the program you're in. Um, if the school is especially difficult to get into, we will take that stuff in, in context and look at it. But remember, we're, we're, we're at Golden Gate, we're really looking at everything very holistically. So you might not have, you might be in a band of you know, grades that you're not that excited about, but maybe you were a microbiology major from Northwestern or something, you know, so we're going to take all that into account. But we do, we definitely will look at that. Yes. She asked about, um, in the context of gaps in a professional career, I mean, I, I, I'm someone who believes that since 2008, since the economy sort of imploded on all of us, everybody gets a little bit of a pass on having maybe some hiccups on their resume. Uh, I, I think, again, you might want to talk about it if it's something that's going to be really noticeable. If I see a job and then I don't see the next job for four years and there's nothing else in the application to tell me what you were doing in that time 
oftentimes it's I went back to school or I was a paralegal taking paralegal courses or something. If there's nothing there, again, don't let my brain start spinning. And it's perfectly fine to say, I lost my job. I mean, we've all experienced what this economy has done to people. We've all got someone close to us who's, I think, been in a bad way. So uh, better to just better to just tell us. You know, it's an important thing. We, we just want to know that you're just not having enormous amounts of downtime where you're just sort of not motivated and not doing anything. Because that's more of a red flag than I lost my job. I don't think there's shame in that at all. It's, well, then what did you do? That's what we'd be interested in hearing about. The, the question, I, I guess, roughly is the way to think about the different offers you'll get from different schools and the, the brand name, so to speak, of the school. You know, yes, that, that, that will happen. I mean, scholarships awarded at the time of your admission are meant to send a message to you that they are interested in having you. Um, sometimes they're very interested in having you, and that will be evident from your scholarship offer. But you're right, then I got into this school and I got a huge scholarship, but there's this other school that is more highly ranked, quote unquote. They have good programs, they're not offering me as much money, but they do have a program I'm really, really interested in. And the school that gave me more money has a weaker program in that area of law, or, or maybe it's vice versa. So you're right, you, you will have to make some decisions. In terms of awarding those scholarships, that's done at the time that we decide to admit you. That is done almost simultaneously. And you know about your scholarship award when you're admitted. Um, some schools don't do it that way. Some follow up later with scholarship information. but. Uh, most tend to tell you when you're admitted what your scholarship offer is. And what are the like the first two things you're looking at when deciding on what's important? On scholarship? Yeah. I mean, the academic indicators are a, a big one. They're not everything. Um, so like first LSAT, then GPA, then full score. That's fair to say. I mean, it, it's it's it can be different for for different applicants. And someone who's been out of school for a while. You know, a GPA may not be the most reliable thing. It may not have any meaning, really, for someone who's been out of school for 20 or 30 years. We do have those, those applicants, you know. But their experience will bring something that you just can't get any other way, right? And they're going to bring a perspective in the classroom that is necessary and desirable. So um, I would look at other things for that person. So it does depend on the individual. But I would say the academic indicators are, are first and foremost in, in deciding whether someone will receive that scholarship. But they may have sort of they may have middling numbers, but they were an amazing person on their undergrad campus, and they have run a company or they've run a nonprofit, you know, while going to school and after finishing school. So and I have to think about that a little bit. So it's it's a very individual process. Yes. I just had a question um, to follow up on uh, scholarships. Are scholarships negotiable? <laughs> they have become negotiable. Um, as well, uh, no, it's true. I mean, as as enrollment has fallen, um, applicants have become very, and I think they're getting the message from out in the world. They've become very aggressive about negotiating scholarships. I mean, it, it never hurts to ask. I think the way you ask is going to make or break. How you do it? Um, I've had people who've been 
utterly gracious and I'm so, you know, thank you so much for the scholarship. I have some other offers and I'm, I'm really struggling and here's what I am hoping for. You know, they're, they're able to approach it in a really mindful and appropriate way. And then there's the people who have gotten offers they never dreamed of because schools are, you know, fighting for a shrinking pool of applicants and they actually got into places and they're kind of feeling very confident about it and they come at you in a very aggressive way and it that's not necessarily going to work out for someone. In fact, it rarely does. So it's, it's, it's in your approach. So. Okay. so how would you go about it? Find out exactly what the school wants you to do. We have a very straightforward procedure. Some schools might put you through to the Dean of Admissions right then and there. But do what, find out what the school wants you to do for it. That's the best way. So, this is a scholarship question. <laughs> okay, last scholarship question is we're going to move on to the next thing. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just curious about how, like, what the percentage of uh, people have done for a scholarship. Well, I mean, it varies from year to year. Um, last year, this incoming class, we came in last fall at Golden Gate, 71%, I believe, had a merit scholarship. A merit scholarship's based on, it's not a need-based scholarship, it's based on the promise you're showing, yeah, the, what you've presented in your application. So I can answer some scholarship questions afterwards, I'll say a little bit. But um, so the last thing I want to talk about, um, and I hope, certainly hope this doesn't happen to any of you, but it might, um, being waitlisted. Being waitlisted means that your application has been considered. It very likely shows a lot of promise. But for whatever reason, and there may be different reasons for every single person who is waitlisted, the school is not able to offer you admission at the time you receive that waitlist notification. It may be because you've got some, some of those weak grades we talked about, but you show promise in other areas, but they're just not able to offer you admission and they, 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 they do want to look at your application more closely or they want to look at it down the road when they've you know, made other decisions about people who uh, are presumptively admissible and they, they're moving through that process. So getting that waitlist letter is not, it's not a denial, and it's not necessarily bad news. People tend to think of being waitlisted as almost as bad or just as bad as being denied. Um, but it, it really, it, it's not the end of the world. And as more schools, not more schools, as the schools are competing for the shrinking pool of applicants, I think a lot of them are a, a little bit more reluctant to, out, to, to outright deny applicants. So they will actually keep people on the wait list and there's a chance those people could be admitted. Um, I manage the wait list at Golden Gate, so I've, I'm actually the person who has to sort of administer that throughout the entire admission cycle. So some things to remember, first and foremost, chin up, it's not the end of the world. Um, but you do need to do some things, some very uh, specific things to make the process go as smoothly as possible. And if all goes well, you may end up with an offer of admission. When you get a waitlist offer, read it really carefully. Every school is going to tell you something different. You might get admitted to one school that you maybe you're not that excited about, but the two other schools you really were excited about might waitlist you. Who knows? It could be any bizarre combination of things depending on how many schools you apply to. 
but everybody's going to approach it slightly differently. Some people, by virtue of telling you you are waitlisted, you're on the waitlist and you'll stay there until the end of the cycle, until they make a final decision, admit or deny. Some schools will only keep you on the waitlist if you affirmatively respond and say, I actually do want to be on the waitlist. Otherwise, they may simply close out your file if they don't hear from you, you know, no news is bad news, and take you out of the, the pool of contention. If you don't want that to happen, do exactly what they tell you, whether it's they tell you to call them, if they tell you to send an email, whatever it is, respond in the way they tell you to do it and, and do it quickly. Don't assume that, well, I got the waitlist letter, so I'm on the waitlist, because that may actually not be true at all. If the school offers to let you send supplemental information, which we do, I'm very explicit about it, I ask you to send me an email, let me know you want to be on the waitlist, and you're also more than welcome to send me any updates, anything you want to share that you didn't initially send in your application, um, new letters of recommendation you might have gotten your hands on since you applied, anything you want to tell me, a promotion at work, you started doing some community volunteer work that you didn't have when you applied to law school, you're teaching adult literacy at the local library three nights a week, that's great information. I actually like to get those updates, and don't be shy about sending that stuff along. Um, you might have gotten moved into a different area of work that's actually more interesting and you're much more excited about it. Yeah, I do want to hear about that kind of stuff. Um, you're able to ask for one more letter of recommendation from someone and you didn't get it in time for your application, but now you've got it. Send it to me. With the caveat that I don't want you to be sending me something every day. I had a waitlist candidate a couple years ago sent me something almost every four or five days. And I finally had to call the person and say, you're scaring me. <laughs> you, you, gotta back, you gotta back off a little bit. Um, be reasonable about it. Don't stalk me. Don't stalk the people in our office. Um, we will tell you when your status has changed. Believe me, you will be the first person to know when we make a final decision, whether that's good news or bad news. Um, you don't necessarily need to call me every day or email me every day. If you want to call me every couple of weeks or send me a quick email just to keep, to, to keep yourself in, in my mind, that's fine. But again, just be, be rational about it. Think about how much you'd like to get that information and at what point you would sort of say, dude, chill out. Um, if you have the opportunity to interview, which we started interviewing our waitlist candidates last year, and you can possibly do it, absolutely take that opportunity. Most schools don't do interviews at all. Some interview all of the people who apply. Some interview just waitlisted candidates. Some don't do it at all. So if the, if the opportunity comes and you can take it, take it. And take it really, really seriously. It was really interesting last year when we interviewed our waitlist candidates um, I, I unfortunately have to say, I, I think most of them didn't really understand how important the interview was. They usually met with either me or the Dean of Admissions and the professor who's the head of our admissions committee. So that's the people. They're the ones who are going to make the final decision. Uh, and a lot of them came sort of woefully un, underprepared, if not unprepared. And it surprised me a little bit. I thought, this is, this is as important as a job interview for a, the 
your dream job, right? I mean, this could change the course of your whole life. And they didn't sort of check in with me before the interview. I would have been happy to, to talk to them a little bit about you know, things they might want to know or how to prepare a little bit. Um, and I was hopeful that because I didn't hear from them, they would just know. You know, they're grown-ups. They'll understand this is important. Um, but I, I was a little surprised. And so it made the people who prepared very, very well really stand out. And those people are sitting in a classroom right now. They got in. They took it seriously. And they showed us that they might not have been amazing on paper, but then we met them. And a couple of them just blew our minds. I, I just kind of thought, what happened in your application, <laughs> you know? If I met you, we would have you know, admitted you immediately. Uh, but they got that chance, they took it, they did it right, and now they're law students. So again, you know, follow these steps really carefully. Be mindful about how you, you handle your time on the wait list. Sometimes you're on a wait list for a month, and sometimes you're on a, a wait list for months. And it's not fun, and I, you know, we understand that. Um, but Try to keep your cool. You will get a final decision no matter what it is. Certainly hope it's good, but um, be prepared to potentially wait for a long time. And if it's the place you really want to end up, if it's the school where you really want to go, you've got to be willing sometimes to spend a little more time in this process than you had hoped for. But again, it could turn out to be to, to, to really be worth the wait. So, questions about being waitlisted. So, if you're waitlisted in multiple schools, is it beneficial to disclose that to the different schools? Um, that's actually an interesting question. I don't think it would have a necessarily negative effect. Um, I don't know that it would necessarily move your candidacy forward in a, in a you know positive way. But I don't think there'd be any. I'm kind of I guess I'm feeling kind of sort of neutral about that. To think about that a little bit more, but if I have, if, if you're waitlisted and you've been in communication with me and I'm sort of getting to know you, and which always is helpful too, because sometimes the committee will come to us and say, or we, we realize we need to admit five more people, ten more people, and it may be June, it might even be early July. And if I've, if you've kept in good contact with me, and I know you're someone who will be willing to do that, act fast get your life in order in just a few weeks and start law school because you really are willing and able to do it right down to the wire, then I'm going to think of you. And you're the file I'm going to pull up and say, well, what about this person? Because that's work for people. Um, so part of keeping in touch is, sure, I mean, you can be candid with, with me and tell me that you're on the wait list. Um, I guess the question I would expect is, you've been admitted somewhere else, you don't really want to go, but you're on the wait list for the school you want to go to, can you leverage that and say, well, I've been admitted, um, depending on the context, I don't know if, if that would be helpful. Um, I suppose there could be a series of incidents where you, you know, we might, we might have interviewed you and really liked you, and then you tell us after the interview, well, I've been admitted to the school, and we really, really, we might make a decision very quickly you know, to avoid losing someone that we really want to be part of the law school community at Golden Gate, so it's a long answer to your question. I'm not sure I answered it. So on an application when you're asked to, it's often, I think it's usually probably a, an optional question, but you're asked to list the other schools you've applied to. 
We will, no, I, I look at, we look at that pretty closely. I, you know, if we want to see who, not only, well, I mean, there, it's for, on multiple levels it's useful. I mean, if, if you're applying to Golden Gate and Harvard, I might wonder about your self-awareness and, you know, the, the real, it's how realistic of you do you have in this. It's like, well, that's, that's two very different kind of places and not sure that, you know, I mean, Maybe not, that large. Not, not that large of a disparity, no, I understand. No, we, we often do want to see, and you know, we're often see. We we know who our who our competitors are, and it's 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 valuable for us to know where you apply, where you're thinking of going, um, if it's geographically significant that you've applied to a lot of different places. That can be interesting to know if it's just California schools or just Bay Area schools. Um, how many of those are our direct competitors? We we certainly look at. Not answering that question is not a bad thing either. If you, Right. You know, it's an optional question, so there's no harm in not, not answering a question like that. But it, it's valuable for us to just sort of get a general idea of maybe what you're thinking and who we're competing with. Yes. The most common reason someone is waitlisted. It's so, it, it's, it can be so specific and individual, but I, if I had to if I had to say, try to quantify, um, it, it's usually some concern about academics or, L, or standardized test performance, LSAT, but it could be character and fitness, we talked about earlier, you know, some significant concerns about a long list of character and fitness disclosures with otherwise, you know, great LSAT, great grades, but oh, this person's got anger management, you know, something like that. But I'd have to say, Probably those academic indicators are, but it's always it's always very individual. What kind of questions would you could you be asked in a waitlist interview? Um, yeah, I mean we we ask some sort of standard questions, but we try to let the interview kind of unfold and ask about the person. I mean, we we want to know sort of who you are and, and why you want to be part of Golden Gate. I mean we have a very specific culture. Um, at Golden Gate. Um, the way we approach teaching is very unique. Um, we hope that people sort of know that and we want, to, we want them to tell us why that's maybe interesting to them. Um, sometimes we'll ask just sort of like, what, what books are you reading right now? And we notice you like to travel, tell us. You know, we'll, we'll try to be organic in terms of what's, who you actually are in your application. Um, but things like, why are you interested in our school? And, why, why do you really want to come here? In, in addition to why you generally want to go to law school, which is hopefully a question you've, you've largely answered in your application, but sometimes that is a question we do feel like we need to ask. So, some questions you might not expect, but you know, those kinds of things. So, learning as much as you can about the, the law school, particularly the programs that you, you think you might be interested in, um, that can help the conversation along too, It'll, and it will show us that you've, you've sort of done your homework. That's helpful. Like you would for a, like I said before, like like a really important job interview. Are you talking about like a, you're asking about, she's asking about letters of recommendation, like a supplemental one that we would get later after being waitlisted or? In terms of. I mean, whether you're, whether you're talking about your initial letters of recommendation or anything that's supplemental after the fact, after maybe being waitlisted, I mean, I, I'm less concerned with 
the name of the person who they are. I want someone who can be really specific about who you are. You know, I think people get obsessed with having a big name, but oftentimes if you have been around someone who's got that big name, you might have worked in that office. You know, you might have worked for a congressperson, and they'd be happy to write you and have their assistant write you a letter because that's what they do because you were an intern in their office. But you know what? You didn't really get to know that congressperson. But you want that name on, you want that letterhead because you think that's going to impress me. It's actually not going to impress me because it's going to be a very generic letter where your name has simply been dropped in, you know, search and replace. Um, but maybe there's a person in that office who's not a known person, but guess what? You work with that person every single day. They can tell me about your work ethic. They can tell me about your reliability. They can tell me about your problem-solving skills. They can tell me what a good team player you are. They can tell me how smart you are. That's the letter I want to get. If that congressperson can do that for you, if you did work directly with them, if they've got the name and the, the, the knowledge of who you are and can authentically talk about it, great. But don't default to the important person, the important person in quotes, because you think that that letterhead's going to dazzle me. It, it's not. It's, what, it's what's in the letter. So professors who you've worked closely with, colleagues, supervisors, they, whoever can be specific about all the things that will make you a great law student. Specificity, and that specificity comes out of knowing who you are, not someone that they passed in the hallway. It was probably a nice person and worked hard, and that'll be about the content of the letter, and that's not going to be helpful to you. So, I think we can take one more question. Oh dear, okay. Uh, yes. We got off on the letters of recommendation before you know it. <laughs> um, it depends. If, if you are still in school or less than a couple of years out of school, those academic recommendations are going to be especially important. Um, if you were a star athlete, get me a, an academic letter and get me a letter from that coach. That's a great combination. If you've been out of school for four or five years or more, Academic letters become kind of, if I'd gone back five years after I graduated and asked one of my professors to write a letter, she would have been like, who the hell are you? So it's not really meaningful. So a, a supervisor, um, a colleague, those are going to be important. But if, if it is a situation like you say with a coach, and you happen to have been a real star in that, that context or that arena, sure, I, I'd love to read about that. If you're competing in athletics at a college level, that can be really impressive on an application. So, well, I think we're out of time. Um, I can stick around and answer some more questions. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for your time. I know I cut into your class tonight, so I really do appreciate you letting me speak to you about some of these difficult issues. Um, I put some materials in the back along with my card, so I, I, I meant what I said in the beginning. Please do not be shy. My job is not only to deal with admitted students, my job is to deal with people who are in the application process. So um, call me, email me, ask me any questions you didn't get to ask tonight. Um, I'd also like to invite all of you, we're having an open house on Saturday, December 13th. Um, it's at 10 a.m. at the law school. So I write that down. Um, we will have um, current students there, some folks to talk to you about financial aid. One of our most popular professors is gonna do a mock class about the Supreme Court Hobby Lobby case. Uh, a really, really fascinating take on Hobby Lobby, so it's going to be uh, very, very cool. I actually can't wait for that. So uh, we'll feed you breakfast, we'll show you around 
what is our mostly newly renovated campus, and we'd love to see you there, and you can learn more about Golden Gate. So, thank you guys. Are you going to take a little break now, or? Yeah, we'll take a little break. Okay. And then go a little bit. Yeah, I'll mingle a little bit. But thank you, and thank you, Nancy.